0: Optimal At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. shake. Can I answer your personal question?
1: Now, what is the appropriate time? What if I
0: did the I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, to tease out the routines, habits, influences, books, etc., that you can use or apply to your own life. And in this episode, I sit down with Edward Norton. At Edward Norton on the Twitters. Please say hello to him. Edward is an actor, filmmaker, and activist. Of course, he's been nominated for three Academy Awards for his work in Primal Fear, American History X, and Birdman. He has starred in scores of other films, including the iconic Fight Club, The Things You Own, End Up Owning You, The Illusionist, and Moonrise Kingdom, among many, many others. Unbeknownst, however, to many people, Edward is also a serial startup founder, He is a UN ambassador for biodiversity, a massively successful investor, for instance, very early in Uber and perhaps a half a dozen other unicorns, a pilot and deeply involved with wilderness conservation. And as luck would have it at this exact moment, I am... ...involved with one of his startups, CrowdRise. I have a campaign on there with Johns Hopkins supporting some fascinating psychedelic research. Check it out. It is to address treatment-resistant depression. It's fascinating. So go to crowdrise.com forward slash Tim Ferriss to check it all out. And we have a very wide-ranging conversation. We cover a lot, including his beginnings, what early mentors taught him, some cool Marlon Brando stories, his physical prep for American History X, surfing, favorite books, documentaries underrated films and filmmakers that reindeer bell sound is Molly doing a little jig in the background. And there are also some cats and heat outside my apartment for some reason. So excuse the extracurricular sound. Uh, Catastrophe of success would be one of the essays. For instance, his advice to his 20 and 30 year old self and much more. One bonus, a book that he recalled one of his favorites after we stopped recording, which I wanted to include is Buddhism without beliefs. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the incredible Edward Norton. Edward, welcome to the show. Thanks. I am sitting here looking out at the surfers, and I know we got to start today because you had a session earlier this morning, and it seems like surfing is a big part of your life. I know this is maybe an odd place to
1: start, but how long has that been the case? It's definitely uh, my most positive addiction. Um, I think I started, I actually, my father lived in Indonesia from like 2005 for about seven years. And um, I was making a film in China called The Painted Veil. And toward the very end of the film, uh, I got chucked off a horse doing a a shot and I broke my back in three places Um, Um. Fortunately didn't hurt my spine at all, just cracked three vertebrae and was really lucky. Um but my back was like a my back was like a an oak table with no articulation in it between my neck and the bottom of my ass. And so I um I couldn't twist, I couldn't like bend, you know, I was really, really racked and um And locked up and, and when the film ended, my dad had just moved to Indonesia. So I went down there, um, for a couple months to hang out with him and just, um, try to recover, um, a little bit. And, and I was like swimming and doing yoga and, uh, getting massages and things like that. And I, there was a surf school on one of the beaches there and, um, I'd always wanted to do that and started realizing that. It, you know, it forced you into a reversed kind of bowed position that was exactly what I was having trouble doing. And so initially I started doing it just taking a big padded board and pat and paddling, you know, just to try to increase my endurance at having my back arched. And, and from there it just, I got completely hooked on it.
0: It seems to undo a lot of the sort of posturally induced problems of, people who use computers too often, right? I mean, you have this sort of protracted rounded back. And then when you're forced into that thoracic extension, even for, you know, a half a minute, of pat or half an hour of paddling or a few hours of paddling, yeah. it just seems to undo and
1: balance all that out. It's, um, it's great. It's great physically. It's, it's actually great aerobically. It's, um, it uses muscles in really weird ways. Um, and, You have to be nimble and retain your ability to like hop up, you know, and you have, you know, you read, you're looking at moving water all the time. And, um, I always say like trying to figure out the micro variations in wave forms and the way they're moving at you and where you should position yourself on them is better than any video game. You know, it's, it's, there's no video game that's more complex than, than trying to read, the nuances of moving water and put yourself in the right place. And it's just, I, I actually totally not facetious. I, it's a, it's an addiction. I think it, it, um, I I have friends who were serious addicts, heroin addicts, you know, really struggled with things who have replaced that with surfing because it, it, it hits parts of the brain. I think that are completely, um, uh, you know, it's like dopamine and serotonin all at once. And you, you come out of it so blissed out and kind of, um, you know, we talk, we were talking about this earlier, like, like, it's like a reboot on the, on this, on your stress, on your crowded mind, on all of it. I just, I just think I, I should meditate more than I do, except I, I do surf and I feel like that's the, I combine I get the meditative value out well, of surfing. I
0: think the the mindfulness aspect of it is, and I'm not a good surfer, although I enjoy surfing poorly. But the the fact that the train is always changing, like you said, makes it very distinct from something that you might think of as similar, like snowboarding. Right, you constantly have to be in a present state, uh have a present state awareness of where you are relative to your surroundings, where you are relative to other people. It's just a, a, it's, it's a, it's a necessity that you're paying attention to what's happening in the here and now.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's, I, it also, you know, um, I, it makes me play hooky more than I do. Otherwise I, I, I'll, I'll suddenly find myself, you know, more able to, to be, confident that i can push other things to the side Mm -hmm. i can't explain it i i it 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 recalibrates my sense of urgency around my to-do list Mm -hmm. you know yeah it sort of uh alleviates
0: the manufactured emergencies somewhat exactly yeah what what other uh morning rituals do you have that you find helpful or have you had
1: um I wish I had better ones is the honest, uh, answer. I, I'm, I wish I, I think I would benefit from, um, from creating more, uh, ritual morning routines that are positive, be it like exercise first thing when I'm not surfing or meditation or, um, anything that sort of, you know, as a matter of practice mm-hmm. starts the day in a, in a, in a mindful way or wh- however you want to put it. You know, I, 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 I too often just let the day begin by opening up the cascade of emails or things that I think I'm supposed to do or you know, it's 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 not the right way to jumpstart the mind, um, and I I it's probably probably um a, that's a category I should do better on. So, so I'm obsessed with routines,
0: of course, different types of habits. Maybe we could. Um, I've wanted to ask you this. I'm actually astonished I haven't asked you this before in our previous conversations. But when you were uh, getting ready for the role in American History X, what type of training? Did you do for that? What did your training regimen look like?
1: Um, it was it was pretty specific. Uh, it was pretty specific to building mass. Like I, I'm not um, doing that. Film created the strangest distortion of perception on me, and I know that's a weird thing to say, but like, um, it was it's unbelievable the degree to which that film and the magic of camera and art and black and white photography and all these things made a lot of people think that I was a a larger and tougher person than I am. (laughs) Like, like people who know me, I think almost couldn't believe what was going on after that film because like, you know, I'm like six feet tall and, I weigh one sixty. if I'm, you know, not in great shape. Like I have thin wrists. I'm not, I'm not a big, um, I'm not, I'm not naturally big. So, um, it was, so it was a, it was a challenge for me to, to, to put, you know, that kind of weight on. And, um, so I just did, you know, many things you'd be more familiar with than almost anybody. I, I, you know, I, I, I calorie loaded. I, I, a lot of lifting, Mm -hmm. um, for a long time for the, for the, for the first portion of it really just didn't, you know, concern with like, um, like leanness at all. Just, just tried to get muscle mass on. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish I'd had your book back then, but I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't probably would have helped me out, but, but I, you know, I did my own version of it. Um, um, increased, increased diet, increased protein, all that stuff. And then, and I, I did it sort of the old fashioned blunt force way, mostly just a lot of probably much more than had I read your book, sort of, you know, your, your minimum effort, um, yeah. uh, kind of maximum. I was probably going way beyond the bell curve in terms of effort required to get the result, mm-hmm. but that's what I did. And then as we approached the film, Um, I moved into kind of like, you know, just fat burning mode and I, I was, I was running, I was doing everything I could to lean out because the, the camera is a, camera is a magical thing. It doesn't, it doesn't actually see absolute scale. It, it really only sees things relative. So you don't know how tall Al Pacino really is unless he's standing next to, you know, Schwarzenegger, like, or whatever, like, right. and, and you don't actually know how big a person is. And lots of people, you know, I had, I had gym rats come up to me and go like, would you weigh, did you, you know, did you weigh two bucks on that? Do you weigh a buck 90? Like whatever. And I was like, no, I wasn't that big. You know what I mean? But we, but if you get form and definition, the camera sees that. And if you put people around you, which we did very conscientiously who are smaller. So like the, the actor guy, uh who played the um the guy in jail the black guy in jail who he becomes friends with Mm -hmm. we we cast he was terrific but he was also really really small and it made me look really really big and those things those things um inflate the perception of how big you've gotten but um it was hard it was hard but i really enjoyed it was the Eating more challenging or the training more challenging? The, the eating was more challenging. I, I, I had trained. I was, you know, um, I rode, I rode crew in college and that was lightweight I, crew or no, I, I rode heavyweight crew. Uh, yeah. What is know. heavyweight? What's the, uh, there's not off? nothing. It's lightweight has a cutoff, but heavyweight doesn't. Um, I okay, and I, like I should not say, like, I was not like a varsity. I, I, I rode uh, my freshman year and I rode my sophomore year. Um, but. Frankly, I probably should have rode lightweight because I, I, I was, you know, at my absolute maxed out. I was, I probably weighed one seventy five when I was really, really big and strong and nineteen years old and everything. And you know, and the guys who were true like varsity A class rowers oh, weighed monsters. they were like two two fifteen, yeah. you know, guys. Yeah. And it was a whole other thing. Um But I loved it. I loved it. And um, and and so training. I was a runner. I did one kind of ultra marathon kind of thing. I I wasn't, uh, training hard wasn't, um, a new thing for me, but, but building bulk was. And did you, was that self-directed
0: or did you hire someone to help you with that?
1: Um, I did a lot on my own, but no, I did. I had a guy, um, whose name is eluding me right now. I never, I never worked with him again or had contact with him again after, but he, Tony. Uh, he was terrific. Yeah, he designed designed the protocol de- for you. Yeah, designed it for me. And um, when
0: uh, when were you introduced to acting, or how did that come to be? And I try and I did do a fair amount of reading, and for whatever reason, wasn't able to pin it down exactly. I mean, the summer camp came up,
1: but I don't no, know where I, things I, began. I mean, mostly, my, you know, my. Um, my mother was an English teacher. She was a high school English teacher and was a real theater aficionado. Both my parents were theater aficionados and film lovers and stuff like that. And, um, but my, they exposed me very early on to, to theater and plays. And I, I, I had a strong pull toward that from the time I was five years old, even I started, I, I, a babysitter of mine, went and i signed up um at the theater at the theater arts program outside of school that she was involved in and that's how that's how i got in, involved in it um and i went you know i went through ebbs and flows i loved i loved it it wasn't it wasn't like i knew i wanted to be an actor i just liked doing it and i loved writing stories i i wrote i made up my own comic books and i made little vhs camcorder films where you use the pause button to as your cut you know what i mean and um uh, just all that stuff I love, not exclusively, not in a way where I knew it was my life, uh, as an adult. Um, and then I, and then I got really self-conscious about it in high school. Like I, I didn't, I went to a public high school. It didn't seem cool to me at all. I was doing my athletics and things, but, um, and the athletics were at that time, what in I high did school? a lot. Of, I played, I played tennis, I played baseball, I, um, played ice hockey, um, where was that? I ran track in, uh, in Columbia, Maryland. Okay. Yeah, it's like, like half an hour south of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And who were your first then
0: uh, mentors in the world of theater acting well, the or woman, performing? Well,
1: um, the woman who created this this local um, theater arts school in our community in, in uh, Columbia, Maryland, her name was Toby Ornstein, and it's crazy to say, but she really was... Um, I still think she's one of the great minds i ever encountered on theater the craft of theater the craft of acting um she was not a uh a regional theater hobbyist she was like i she was my Stella adler really like when i was young and infused us when we were really young with i don't know a sense of seriousness about it and uh of you know crap like when you're young and you know told us to read and told us to like be erudite on plays and and it was it was really interesting and then um uh i i, I like i said i got kind of in my teens i got kind of self-conscious about it and then um i saw i saw ian mckellen do a one-man show in washington dc when i was about 17 and it was it was so it had such a huge impact on me that i i i thought i thought Wow, this is something you could actually do as a as a as an avocation. You know, what I mean, this is something that you can do as an adult, and it's and it's like big and important and meaningful. That's how I felt about it, and and then I still didn't really co- uh, have a notion that I was going to commit myself to that until a couple of years after college. Even couple years after college, what yeah. was your major in college? Or what I did studied you history. I got a degree in history. Mm-hmm. Did you with a focus on Asian studies and languages and stuff? And the, if we, if we go back
0: to, and I'm blanking, I apologize, what was her name again? The, uh, the first woman, the. Toby Ornstein. Toby. Yeah. What, could you tell a story or give an example of what type of thing she would emphasize when she was working with you guys or, or um, any particular. I mean, I think she just. Memories kind of, of her.
1: Uh, she was a great director, great. Um, mostly, I think, you know, I think a lot of people would say that someone in their early life, There's always, if you're lucky, you have someone when you're young who doesn't talk down to you, who doesn't, who, who speaks to you as a serious person and exhorts you to be, to take something seriously, to take work seriously, you know, and, and if a person does that in the right way, you feel elevated. Like as a young person, you feel elevated. You feel like someone is. Someone's saying to you, hey, you want to be taken seriously? Then take things seriously. Do the work. You know, um, don't coast, you know, and, and, and I'd say that's what she gave. Later, when I was in New York, um, I had a teacher named Terry Schreiber who ran a terrific the- theater studio in New York, acting studio in New York. And, um, he, I would say, I've often said about him that the thing I, admired most about him was that he was a like a pluralist and by that i mean he he was he basically kind of he basically you know rejected this notion that that has infused i think a lot of the training of actors that that a methodology is a is you know that like one methodology holds the key to anything he was like basically like all of these things are uh like what a, a forehand a backhand a volley a serve are to a tennis player so that is you know the, the Lee Strasberg method the Stella Adler imagination focus the the Sandy Meisner you know exercises he he basically just said if if you don't get yourself conversant with a lot of shots you're just not going to be great like you you're not going to you're not going to be able to address material with diverse skill sets um as called for, you know what i mean and and I thought that was that really resonated with me because I was really turned off by um dogma right sounds like
0: the bruce Lee of of acting and performance and the sort of the, the yeah yeah accept what is useful, reject what is useless and yeah what is uniquely your own type exactly
1: of exactly I, I I never thought of it that way, but that's yeah i i agree i am uh, i
0: 've always been. Uh, insecure on stage. Uh, and I still pace around like a nervous wreck before every time I get up to give a keynote or whatnot. I'm actually taking, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but just keep in mind, I'm actually taking my first acting class as an adult at the end of this month. And it's a three day, I think it's going to be focused on improv. I don't know exactly what the curriculum is, but what advice would you give? And it's not that I plan on acting per se, I just thought it would be, a helpful exercise to get over my fear of doing this type of thing
1: what what advice might you give me it's it's um i always uh i always think that one of the most interesting things about the challenge of representing behavior which is basically what acting is or representing emotion representing whatever you want to call it is um That, like, everybody does this all the time. Like, very few people are, very few people are, are perpetually speaking in their authentic voice, you know, like, like the Dalai Lama (laughs) might, but I, but I bet he's got his moments where he's sort of playing the role of a monk. You know what I mean? In a way, as well. (laughs) And, And we just, we put on faces, we put on, we put on postures, we, we adapt who we are depending on the circumstances that we're in all the time. And people do it seamlessly all the time and, and unselfconsciously. Um, and yet the minute that you tell someone that other people are going to watch them do anything, definitely. I think when you put a camera on someone, the effect of self-consciousness is so profound on the, on people's inability to do that which is completely natural to them at all time at most times in their lives and and i almost think like as as soon as you put someone on stage or you put a camera on someone it's like if there's a circle and on one side of the circle is naturalistic you know behavior as soon as you throw someone on stage it hurls them to the other side <laughs> of the circle and they immediately become wooden unnatural they make they make choice. They become unable to, um, and a lot of that has to do just with tension and and um, a sense of urgency, nerves. You know, I, I think like the old fight uh, fight or flight thing. Like I think this is a weird thing to reference, but you know, there's these there's these great like there's this European show that was like a candid camera type show. It did a lot of things like where they, you know, they were scaring people or setting up a situation of, you know, a ticking suitcase in front of a, um, of a train station. And, and what's amazing is how paralysis is actually the most common response. Like pe- people imagine in their minds what their behavior is going to be when presented with certain stimulus or, or circumstances. But the truth is, is that people go into a stone cold freeze in many, many situations, you know, and there's a lot of studies on this and like the, you know, the behavior of crowds and all that kind oh, of sure. stuff. Like right. we we'll like, getting stabbed yeah, in the street Pete and you have
0: 40 people who staring. all expect someone else to do. Right. Something.
1: Right. And, and also just because I think it's, it's something deeply biological. Like there's a lot of safety and freezing, you know what I mean? Um, but I think that it's very hard for people to find, um, a comfort a relaxed comfort let alone a sense of pleasure within the idea that they're they're performing in front of other people right um and and is and and so they start to um they stop listening you know they stop um they they start doing what i would call up the middle choices like they start they start painting in the color blue instead of doing the little things that um that that the i can't explain that a moment would actually call for the uh, one of the best stories i ever heard about young people in an acting class and um you know, the difference between sort of what happens to people typically and what a, a real authentic kind of genius is, is that Harry Belafonte, Harry Belafonte talked about being in an acting class with Marlon Brando when they were both like literally like 19 or 20 years old in Greenwich Village. Um, and I think he said that there was a, that it, what they said was, okay, one person is in a, one person's, uh, in his apartment and the other one enters. You're the person who's on your couch in your apartment. The other one enters, scene ensues, you know, just like run, just run with it. And all these people were doing all these kind of, um, you know, sort of forced conversations or trying to create a scenario or something. And m- supposedly Marlon was sat on the couch and started reading a magazine and whoever it was with his, him walked in his door and he looked up and jumped up and grabbed the guy by the shirt front and threw him out the door and slammed the door. And everybody was like, what are you doing? He was like, I don't know who that fucking guy is. (laughs) Like he just walked into my apartment. Like he scared the shit out of me. You know what I mean? And it's like, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. There probably wouldn't be a scene. There probably wouldn't be a conversation. There'd be a like, (laughs) like, who are you? Super
0: awkward confrontation.
1: Exactly. Like get out. Um, and I, and I was obvious, the most obvious true thing that you would do which is one you know and
0: what but, would the up the middle choice have been in that scenario or what is that like what what is a, another example of that because i love to well, get a better understanding
1: I don't know there's a great you know i i um i think that uh you know when put it this way uh y- there's an argument and there's something about the writing of a scene that indicates the lines, or whatever, it indicates stress or it indicates anger. But the thing is that people. So then, the up the middle choice is to raise your voice and be angry. But but what we all, I think, know on some deep level when we watch people performing who who really grab us is that they 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 have an intuition for the choices that reflect the way that those things actually manifest themselves sometimes. Like people who are angry, you know, sometimes laugh, um, they laugh, they laugh or they, or they go into silence or they go into slow burn. Like, like anger doesn't mean volume, but, but, but if there's an exclamation point on the end of the sentence in the script, they'll go with that exclamation point as opposed to, um, there's a great, there's a great, um, there's a there's this a film I love called The French Lieutenant's Woman. Um, the French the Lieutenants. French Lieutenant's Woman. Yeah, it's Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons, and um, uh, I think it's uh, I think either Harold Pinter or Tom Stoppard wrote the script. I but um, the there's a scene toward the end when Jeremy Irons <coughs> excuse me it's okay Jeremy Irons character has. <coughs> i'll say it again (laughs) there's um there's a scene toward the end where jeremy iron's character has been looking and looking for meryl streep and he he finds her after literally years of searching and he's become angry and and they they go to have a conversation and he's so angry and overwrought and he goes to leave and she moves to stop him and he takes her and sort of in anger and seizes her by the shoulder and sort of pushes her out of the way. And, and it's, it's one of those things, the camera's set three steps down in a low recessed room and they're up these three steps and clearly it, it, it was a, a, a planned thing where he throw her and she did a, you know, a staged fall down sort of right into the camera and, and very dramatic and then he, he's, he's struck by his violence and he goes to pick her up and, and the scene continues on. And, um, and if you watch, I remember watching it and suddenly realizing that if you watch it closely, he throws her down and she strikes her head on the floor. You can, you can see that she hits her head on the floor. And you can see, if you look carefully, that her reaction, she really hits her head. And you can even see it more on Jeremy Irons that, that he realizes she struck her head and his reaction is, Is so alarmed. He he is broken totally out of the scene for a moment. Runs to her, picks her up, and if you watch it really closely, you can see that he is checking in with her, the actress, for a second, and is about to open his mouth. I think and and just you know stop and say, "Are you okay?" And she puts her hand up over his mouth, like like as though to say, "I." I'm not we're we're going on and he realizes that she's still in it and and covers his own mouth with his hand to stop from smiling and and what she does in this moment where you would think you know the whole thing is very melodramatic and she just she does this laugh in that thing and I used to watch it because it's the strangest it's just the strangest most wonderful choice but it's so true because she's just like it's completely absurd. She's just laughing at the absurdity of it all and laughing at these things. And then the scene sort of settles and they go into this gentle conversation and everything. But it's, it's amazing. It's why she's like one of the great, great greats of all time, because she like, I I think it's a completely counterintuitive choice and it's a, and it's, a great example of like two great actors and one of them is even about to break out of it. Cause it's like, Oh, uh, something's happened that wasn't supposed to happen. So we should stop. And she's like, no, that's real. You know, something's happened that makes it really, really interesting now. So let's not stop. And, and it's, it's beautiful. That, uh,
0: sort of level of judgment under duress. It makes, if it's just thinking of a battlefield medic or something like that, I mean, having the presence of mind, to put the hand over the mouth.
1: I'll have to yeah. watch that. I haven't yeah, seen it. Yeah, it's that. good. I, I asked them both about it and got confirmation that that's what happened. So I I know I'm not like uh, imagining it. If you were, say, directing a film and you had the opposite experience, you had a, a
0: novice actor who was intimidated, say, by the people around them and they were paralyzed for whatever reason or being too robotic, what what would you do or say to kind of knock them out of that?
1: mm it's tough. It really, and if de- it's a bad, qu- it could be a bad question no, too. Just, I'm out it, of my depth. It depends on the situation. I mean, I think, um, it's the, the interest, the thing that makes that work all interesting so much of the time is that it's, it's just, it's, it's a chemistry. There's a chemistry between the people involved that's unique every time. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's, um, the dynamics are, are, are unpredictable and fluid and very unique to the people involved. And you have to, you really have to find your way. Like every time I, Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things I like about it is that I, um, if I walk on, if I walk into those situations feeling confident, I think that I've probably been working too much. You know what I mean? Like I almost think it's, it's almost better to feel, um, at sea, if it's good, if it's complex, uh, it's a, it it's a, it's a lot of uncertain discovery in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, uh, the, the sense that the sense that you're, that you're at a loss or you're finding your way and you're, you know, means that you're in, you're, you're involved in something worthwhile. I think if it's, if it's, if you're cruise, if you're cruising and it's a thing, then it's probably not that interesting. (laughs) If, uh, I mean, you,
0: you've spent obviously a lot of time honing your own craft. You've spent a lot of time with masters of, of, in many different fields. Uh, I'm curious if you have any impressions or recollections of, uh, Hicks and Gracie when you were filming the incredible Hulk, were you able to spend any time with him or
1: did you? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Um, not as much as I would have liked to, um, I, uh, it's funny, I started, when I was in, when I was in college, um, I started studying Aikido, um, and, you know, that was the era, that was exactly when, um, uh, uh, Hoist Gracie won the first Yeah, Uf- it must have been like 92 or something. yeah, exactly. So around there. Um, oh. And maybe I started saying, but I... You know, and, and I, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a huge person. Uh, I'm tall and everything, but one of the things that drew me to Aikido was that it, it had a lot of, uh, it, it was one of the first things I experienced where understanding physical leverage really persuaded me that a smaller person could, could, I don't want to say defend themselves, but that, that, that this technique actually worked on a smaller person who was, with a, a larger person, I, I always felt like with certain things I had studied that ultimately, like if a person's bigger and stronger and faster, they're just gonna they're gonna you know steamroll you. And and Aikido was one of the first things I ever experienced where much smaller people were commandingly over you know overmastering much bigger people. And and when and when Hoist Gracie won that UFC, I mean it was it was. It's hard to overstate the impact of that. Like I mean, if you're interested in these types of things, sure. he that rewrote that rewrote people's sense of what the priorities in you know, in martial arts should be. That you had after that, like you had to be a grappler, you had to be a jiu-jitsu artist. You couldn't you know, you 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 couldn't just be like a striker and and they and they were le- you know, so they were legend and I was I was interested in japanese studies and aikido and things like that so i was the whole thing of the gracies and their form of jujitsu was like was like I, I was very um interested in all that so me so i i wrote i wrote into the script that he's doing breath training with someone in brazil and i, I wrote in parentheses um you know like, like Hicks and Gracie, but you, like one of the Gracie's, but you'll never get, we'll never get them. <laughs> I knew mean, it was in parentheses in the script. And, um, and then we found out he was down there and everything. And, you know, it was, it was amazing. He's, uh, th- those guys are, are, um, magicians. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're really, really, uh, like Ricky Jay is to magic or, you know, Kelly Slater is to surfing. It's like when you're, when you are, when you're with someone who's got that level of <laughs> you know, alpha over everybody else, it's really, really really neat.
0: Yeah, for those people listening who don't know who Hickson Gracie is, uh it it doesn't of course cover it completely, but just check out the documentary Choke. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's it's a great introduction to not only Hickson, but also uh gives a, a decent dose of, of Japanese culture. Now you, you spent time in Osaka, is that right? Mm-hmm.
1: Or how long were you there? I was there for a long summer, um, between my junior and senior year in Mm -hmm. in college. I had a job over there. Um, And, uh, what attracted you to Asian culture or Japanese culture? Um, I was, I was interested in, in, yeah, I mean, I wish I could say it was something more evolved, uh, than, than, um, the Richard Chamberlain miniseries of Shogun, but I think it was that. <laughs> good I, miniseries. Yeah, I think I saw, I, when I was a kid, I think the, the Shogun was on, then that I went and read Clavel's book and then, and then I, you know, devoured a lot of his Asia sort of historical novels and thought they were really neat. And, and then it, um, you know, it, uh, it, it kind of grew from there and then, um, I became interested in, in, in Buddhism, you know, history of Buddhism and stuff like that. And, um, Japanese aesthetics really appealed to me. And, um, the idea of Zen really captivated me when I was like in my late teens and stuff like that. And I, I, um, that, that, that was all just what pulled me into it. And then, then, uh, uh, I love spending time over there and stuff. And then like, you know, and then, one of my advisors, one of my professors was one of the great Chinese, modern Chinese, um, historians, Jonathan Spence. And, um, he wrote like, to me, the definitive book about modern Chinese history called The Search for Modern China and, um, just Death of Woman Wong to Change China, all these great, great, great books. Um, and, uh, and he was a phenomenal he really activated history. You know, he, he really like was one of those people who I thought his lectures were just fantastic. And, um, and, um, that, that drew me into that interest. Why did you decide to
0: major in history?
1: Um, because I realized, um, my freshman year, uh, that I had no natural, uh, Mozart like talent for math. (laughs) (laughs) And so that my dreams of like being Carl Sagan or a great astrophysicist were probably going to be hampered by my, um, by my poor grasp of even, um, you know, complex math, let alone like physics. And, uh, so I, so that became a hobby and a passion, but not, you know, and I realized I, I probably was a humanities major. <laughs> um, but I, no, I, I, I really, I've always really liked reading. I've always really, to me, like studying history and travel, are almost like the same thing. It's like I, I having a sense of like, you know, how things became the way they are and how people became the way they are is really interesting to me. Uh, Humans of New
0: York. So I've had a, quite a few fans ask me to uh, explore this a bit. Can you explain to people your how you came to be? What is Humans of New York, and how did you come to be involved with it?
1: Um, I'm not involved with it, but, uh, to be clear, I, I, um, my or sister per, turned me on. Yeah. My se. my yeah. sister turned me on to the site. Um, and, and I think a, a couple of my friends in New York mentioned it to me and it just, um, I liked it. I, th- I thought the site was really, uh, I don't even know what to call it. A blog, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a a, a, a portrait series. Uh, you know, it's, a. um, it remind not to be too academic, but the, the, there's a great, um, there's a great American cultural anthropologist, Studs Terkel, you know, um, and he, Studs Terkel was like the the great chronicler of American working man and the the common man kind of, pro, you know, he, he was the, the depression era version of, of that. And, um, and I feel like, I feel like what this guy's got going with humans of New York is like a modern day Studs Terkel kind of, um thing and I and it's it's just great if you're a New Yorker or, or anybody, it's a it's a really really cool um vantage on on just people. And uh and so actually again my sister just flipped me said, have you seen this series he's got going? And um he had he had just launched this series of profiles that he was calling the Syrian Americans about about he'd gone to Turkey to photograph and interview and profile people who were getting asylum, um, in the U S and were coming, you know, as though to say, okay, like let's, let's meet who these people really are and get out of the demagoguery of it all. And just sort of see, and I, and you know, if you, if you looked at any of them, they were incredibly, incredibly affecting stories. And how did that intersect
0: then with crowd rise?
1: Well, um, crowd rise, uh, just last year, uh, at the, about this time last year, we, we made the decision to, um, expand from hosting only, um, uh, peer to peer fundraising projects and crowdfunding projects for registered nonprofits and charities to, to also letting people raise direct assistance for other people, um, you know, people who wanted to raise medical costs for a friend who had had an accident or, uh, some, a friend who'd lost their house. And you know, so we, we, we decided to support fundraisers with, um, where people could help friends or loved ones with medical costs, uh, crisis, education costs, tuitions, things like that. And, um, Partly because so many people who use CrowdRise, um, were asking us that, that they preferred to keep using their CrowdRise profile pages and, and mount those types of projects rather than have to go offsite to these, frankly, in my opinion, fairly shitty, um, exchange utilities, as I call them, like places that are just transactional platforms with no real strategic support, um, n- no long-term capture of your personal philanthropic narrative and and that charge in my opinion way 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 too much so because CrowdRise on the charitable you know on the charity side had already pioneered kind of mechanisms for delivering donated dollars through at, at a incredibly reduced rate compared to other platforms um, often we're able to offset even the credit card fees so um, uh, charities were already excited about and benefiting from being able to get their donation dollars through at cheaper than they can on their own websites. And as I was looking at the sites that support direct assistance fundraisers, and I was looking at the rates of charge, I was just like, screw this man. We, we need to, we need to make, we need to make our pricing model available to people who are trying to help their friends and family. Um, and so we did, I hadn't used that I hadn't even used that functionality on our own site. And when I saw that story, um, I decided I was going to do my first, you know, direct assistance fundraiser to help that family. And, and if we raised enough to help a couple of the families in the series. Mm -hmm. And how did the campaign do? Um, the can, the campaign was tremendous. It, it, um, it, it raised, it raised the first 300,000 in, in like 30 hours. I mean it it really it really went fast and then and then it climbed toward I think we're at you know 460,000 or something like that across the next day or two. Um and what's fascinating I think just you know to give huge credit to Brandon and who who's the founder of Humans of New York and the photographer and writer and he we, I didn't even, we didn't put it out in any kind of crowd rise social media or mine or anything like that. We just, Brandon, I set up the page and Brandon posted on humans of New York and a huge increment of that was driven in very short order in, I think, donations that averaged 26 bucks or 27 bucks just from the humans of New York reader base. And then we expanded it. We let some media be done on it and stuff like that. And I think when all said and done, we'll probably get up to half a million, but, um, um, I, I, loved it. You know, I, I, I loved seeing, I loved seeing that, you know, for the price of, um, three Venti Frappuccinos, people could, without putting any kind of a dent or making any kind of a stretch in their own capacity, just make the, the emotional gesture of responding to a story that touched them and, and demonstrate that in aggregate if people will do this you can you can generate transformative impact um uh as a crowd and that's that's the essence of why we set crowd rise up and i think um uh it was it was it was pretty thrilling like we had a lot of people on the CrowdRise rise staff and brandon at humans new york we were all just like you know we were all Pretty, pretty emotional about it. It was, it was really, it was really cool to see it unfold. And I think, by the way, again, that wasn't, it really was not a function of anything particular to my public profile at all. It, it it really wasn't. It was driven. I think it was driven almost exclusively by the authentic passion of the humans of New York reader base who also were responding to the story and just were happy that someone had Created the vehicle to all gather around and respond together. And I, and I think that, you know, I think that that's available to all of us. That's what I like about it. I don't, I don't think, um, I think uh, you and I were talking about this earlier. I think, you know, we're in this very strange time where like resource concentration is a real, you know, it's a, it's a real thing. Like people can say whatever they want, but the, the relative share of, of, of national wealth is being held by, in larger and larger increment by fewer and fewer people. And at the same time, we're cutting, you know, aspects of the social safety net and food stamps, as our friend Tony Robbins points out. And, um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that's exciting about the, the networked world and the sort of the distributed the the empowerment of a distributed culture of people outside of government agencies, outside of corporate constructs, outside of everything to be able to assemble and rally together is that people can proactively address things like that. We can move resources without anybody else's say, so we can decide, you know, uh, we can decide that we want to get together around things and, and assemble resources and make things happen like in with incredible speed, like incredible speed. Yeah. And I think that's really, really exciting.
0: And what you mentioned also, which I think is worth underscoring part of the reason I've been so excited by crowdfunding of, of, of many different types is like you said, you, you can not only affect change in some cases, massive change with incredible speed, you can do it without any given individual suffering a decrease in their quality of life yeah. or discretionary income or anything else, because yeah. you have just a thousand tiny movements that build this groundswell that can then sort of get something to escape velocity. And uh, I've, I've had a fantastic experience working with the Gradrise rise team and uh, for those people interested and it, you mentioned Tony, Tony's also behind this. Uh, I think that you know, depression and sort of the, um mental health research uh, in the U.S. has a long way to go, and particularly with uh, classic compounds that could be called entheogens, they could be called psychedelics. But I'm working with a team at Johns Hopkins, Roland Griffiths, and we're looking at uh, – or we will be conducting a pilot study – using psilocybin for the uh, addressing of treatment-resistant depression. So depression, major depression that uh, in subjects that has not responded to SSRIs or other types of therapy. And uh, preliminary data would suggest that uh one dose has a rapid, substantial and sustained effect, some in some cases up to six months, with uh, antidepressive uh effects. And so we'll be not only conducting the administration of the psilocybin, but also using things like functional MRI to track and analyze it. So we can hopefully determine how to safely best administer, uh, psilocybin or some analog of that. And what's so cool about it is it, it takes, uh, the study would cost a lot less than people might expect. It's $80,000 and have a, a roster of, of thought leaders from different areas who are, uh, in support of this, including Tony. So for people who want to check that out and also just check out CrowdRise as a platform and, uh, and see how well the, the entire page is put together. You can go to crowdrise.com forward slash Tim Ferriss, whether you know how to spell it or not. Any misspelling will probably go to the same place. So crowdrise.com forward slash Tim Ferriss. And I'll link to that in the, Show notes. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention about? Well, credits? no, I
1: think, I think, I, I do, I love that we're gonna, we're gonna work with you on this because I also think that, um, uh, I was having this conversation with Tony Robbins yesterday, um, because he, like you, has a terrific, um, community of people that rally around the ideas and, um, and that you, that you share and pull together and source for people. And I think, um, I do think it's again, it, it, to me, what you're doing and the notion that it doesn't matter that Tony could write a check for it or you could write a check for it or whatever the, the notion that, that you can open up a serious conversation about a blind spot, you know, a a a, a, a blind spot that we've got about, you know, um, um the potential in something uh being taken off the table as an opportunity for people because it's going to get you know lumped in to a category of of drugs viewed as negative you know what i mean yeah. and um and is just it's so it's it's crazy but the idea that you know there's actually in many ways, I think there's much more potency in the idea of, of people of common mind about the rationality of something rallying to the tune of 25 bucks a piece to collectively say, let's, let's make this happen. Like, let's make this happen. We don't need a, f- a foundation. We don't need a rich person. We don't need a, uh, you know, say so from, um, the NIH we're gonna make this happen um i think it's i think it's like actually kind of like a 21st century expression of um like if you go back if you go back and read uh de tocqueville's democracy in america you know he's this french guy visiting america in the 1830s or whatever and commenting on like what is it like he basically one of the most notable things he says is he goes around and says like these people just start organize they just they just get together and get things done is basically what he's saying he's like all he comments on all the civic groups and all the community organizations and all the trade ge- you know he basically is amazed by what um what self uh pro- proactive self organization Americans do and this is you know nearly 200 years ago and i think and i love it i think this is exactly what you're doing is exactly that it's like saying um hey in this forum that you've got we we can get this done let's let's rally together and do it and i i think that's uh i think we've only really scratched the surface of of the potential in rallying crowds of people around needs ideas um you know businesses it's 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 um we we're, we're in the we're in the earliest earliest infancy still um maybe not the earliest we people people who poo pooed it at first have now had to acknowledge that it's a a force but i think it's still gotta i think it's still um gonna mature and and become an even bigger um part of our of our kind of cultural practice almost
0: oh i agree and i th- i think that you the reason just to build on what you said the reason that I'm not just say funding this one study is that I really believe having just observed millions of people now on my various uh, outlets and on the blog and so on for almost 10 years, hard to believe <laughs> next year is the 10th anniversary of the first book. It's insane. But is that most people do not attempt great things because they don't believe they can perform or achieve great things. Because I think in part the, the word great implies something of massive magnitude uh, that in engenders in a lot of self-sacrifice. And I think with the technology that we have now, what I want people to experience firsthand is that they can participate, make a very small chess move themselves, say moving that pawn forward one square, that collectively with everyone else doing the same, wins the uh, the, the equivalent of like the world series and puts a real positive dent in the universe. Like with this study, it's a chance for people to become potentially part of history. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it could really be an Archimedes lever in, uh, reinventing how we look at treating depression and doing so with fewer side effects. And to do that, participate, even if it's $1, $25, or just say hypothetically $0, but you tell, 10 other people about it. Right. And in that way participate.
1: Well, that's, to- I, that's, that's part of what you're talking about in terms of leverage is what it, it is also, I think a part of the almost like the philosophical conviction we have at CrowdRise, which is that, um, people's capacity to affect change is not a function of their financial capacity. It's that everybody in the world we're living in has in a dozen for a dozen assets they can leverage that their, you know, their Facebook page, their social networks, their, you, you know, their friends and family, their schools, their institutions, their companies. Um, everybody's got networks now. It's not just the Rolodex anymore. It's now there's a mini network effect around uh, everybody and available to everybody. But they have their energy, they have their creativity, they have their passion, and they have their tools now that let so many more people from the comfort of their couch, um, exert their brain, their creativity, um, without like massive logistical and cost constraints on them. And so we're, we're saying it all the time, like, you know, it's, it's not even a question of whether you've got, even the capacity to donate 25 bucks to a psilocybin study it's like if you believe in it um almost everybody can ask 20 friends for 10 bucks and and donate 10x their per, you know, personal capacity you know it's like you can do anything that you care about you actually can affect now and i think um uh one of the reasons like we we set CrowdRise up as a as a, not a kind of a use-and-drop evaporative platform, but a place where, like a Facebook or a Twitter, it's a permanent staging ground for a certain type of activity that you're doing, is that we we think people get proud when they do these things. They're proud to participate. They're proud of the things they've done. And, and so we give them the opportunity to stage multiple projects over time and capture the aggregate narrative right. of everything they've done year over year. Um, you know, that's why we'll do this with you. And then you'll do something else and we'll do it again and we'll do it again. And soon it won't just be the the individuated success of these projects that sort of evaporate. It'll be like Tim's impact page will... Will show the total, you know, it'll, it'll be a way of looking at the totality of what you've done over time. And I think, I think that's really, really, that's a difference in a true platform versus what I would call just a payment utility.
0: No, I, and this to me is, uh, and this has a lot of, uh, for those people who've heard my, my podcasts with James Fodeman or, uh, Dan Engel and Martin Polanco, I mean, this, these types of compounds have had a huge impact in my life in ways that I couldn't have imagine possible and so it's it's less a transaction or even a campaign in my mind uh, than the beginning of a movement and so i felt
1: like it was it was the right match Uh, yeah you want stickiness you know you want you want recurrence you want like um you want uh, a, a micro platform turnkey made easy for you that that becomes something that can sustain you know do we have some time for a few
0: more questions yeah when you hear the word successful who is the first person who comes to mind and why
1: my dad is up there um, my dad my brother uh You know, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, um, it's about people who spring to mind so much as that, like, I definitely find, um, that almost in that childlike way of, like, role modeling. Now in my life, when I meet people who seem like they've got, They've got their aspirations and their engagement in balance with a lot of time for contemplative uh, time, family time, personal health, physical health. I, I tend to look at that and go, wow, like, I want to be like that guy or that woman. You know, that, that they, I, I, I definitely have seen more than enough people with success as defined by notoriety or money or whatever, who look like, like the specter of, you know, despair to me. Like I, I've seen, I've seen as I'm sure you have like lots of people, you know, with the albatross of success around their neck, um, that seemed like an intense, uh, cautionary tale to me. Like I'd rather, um, you know, so, so it's more, I, you know, I, I, my sense of like what constitutes a health, uh, a, a successful person is probably more defined now by what looks like a healthy person.
0: How do you prevent yourself from becoming intoxicated by the sort of culture or Cult of personality that so seems to be so prevalent in the worlds of say entertainment or that obsession with material wealth, I mean it seems to be that type of albatross seems to be very common what if what have uh what has
1: helped you to not succumb mm, you know like i think I think everybody's gotta constantly uh like sort of do battle with like the voices in your head that of ego and you know um i mean that's what birdman was all about that literally i think that the beauty of what alejandro took on in that film was being honest about the degree to which voices in your head like just hammer at you and hammer at you and hammer at you about what you don't have and what what you ought to be aspiring to and um mattering you know in the world and and um and I think that anybody, very few people are, are, are really free of that. But, um, but I think that, um, living in New York helps me oddly just because it's not, it's not a film industry town. It's not, I, there's so much going on there and there's so many things I'm interested in and involved in. It, it, it keeps my life diverse. And, um, and when I'm out here where we are, like, I, I do find that, like, you know, like being in the water and being able to hike and I'm a pilot. So fly, you know, flying and t- there's just things that take you out of your, things that take me out of my head help a lot, um, are pretty key. But I, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm ridiculously fortunate. Um, and I think, uh, I've, I have more than enough. And I, I think that, um, um, mm, Sometimes it's, 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 it's even getting a little bit of a taste of how much, like, you know, material possessions can really be a trap. It's like there is that, you know, the things that you own end up owning you kind of maximum. And I think that they, the, I do think it's really, really true. I think, I think you start realizing how much lighter you feel when you dispense with a lot of that stuff. Then it, it, that becomes a positive snowball, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. What, uh, what books or book, have you given
1: most as a gift to other people that's a good question um, um there was a period where i i i really liked antoine uh de saint exupery's book uh it's called wind Sand and stars oh ah, i haven't read that that's one. a that's uh, that's like uh a a great great one. Um, were you interested in him
0: because he was a pilot or did, did?
1: Yeah, both. I was, I was reading a lot of books about flying, but real that, innovator that, in,
0: I guess, what postal delivery. Yeah. Like yeah.
1: That. I mean, he was flying the mail from like the Sahara to Paris and, and from Patagonia to Paris, which is, re- you know, from, yeah, that's I mean, I, crazy. For those people who don't recognize the name, also wrote The Little the Prince. The Little Prince. Yeah. But, you know, he's a, a, I mean, Wind, Sand, and Stars is like, um, it's, 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 it's as much a book about the a philosophy of life as it is and, and as it is about flying. It's, it's like Zen and Zen in the, in the craft of flying. Um, but it's, uh, it's just beautiful. Um, um, we were talking about this earlier. I really like that book, The Black Swan. Yeah. I, I gave that to friends of a certain type. Um, <laughs> what, what type? Um, <laughs> Uh I really enjoyed that book. Yeah, as well. yeah. I think it it's it's an extremely like it's an if you if you absorb it right, it's 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 got a really amazing capacity to prick certain bubbles of delusion or or help you realize bubbles of delusion that we all operate in, and it's um I think it's really, really cool. Um How not to fool yourself. Yeah. I um
0: mm, you mentioned two essays, and we don't have to go too deep into the... I'll just name them and then link to them in the show notes. But there was Second Wind. Second Wind, yeah. Which was by the former Czechoslovakian president. I'm not going to get his first name Václav right. Václav Havel. Havel, H-A-V-E-L. And then The Catastrophe of Success, and the author is... Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams. Any context that you'd like to provide for folks for those two?
1: Just great... Um the Catastrophe of Success is like one of the great essays by a creative person about um exactly what you're just talking, the traps, the traps that follow on achieving anything really that you were aspiring to achieve. And then what do you what happens after that happens, you know, and Second Wind is sort of the same from a different perspective, more like how do you how do you have the courage to kind of um not repeat yourself put yourself out of your comfort zone uh in a creative sense but also in a life sense and 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 um uh i I think what i like about second wind is as a playwright he was sort he's sort of saying like that you kind of disgorge like a point of view and you can keep doing that but at some point if you don't stop and go back into like absorption mode you're going to, you're going to be repeating yourself of course, and, yeah. and you have to dare to like, you have to dare yourself to, to, to stop, listen, live, absorb, and then try again from scratch. You know what I mean? That that's like, it's a great essay. It's really, really great.
0: Do you have any uh, favorite documentaries?
1: Many. Um I won't name ones that probably, t- I, uh, I love Bennett Miller's uh film, the, the Cruise. The Cruise. Yeah. Bennett, people know he directed, uh, Capote and mm-hmm. Moneyball and Foxcatcher, brilliant filmmaker. But I think almost my favorite film of his is a documentary called The Cruise. What is that uh, about? Is... It's about a guy who's a, a, a tour. He's a, he's a tour guide, um, uh, host on the open double decker buses in New York City. Who's cool. who, Who's a poet and who I can't, you can't, you just have to see it. It's okay. great. Um, uh and i really like that one um mm, other ones people might not have seen i really like i really like adam curtis's films um great british documentarian he's got that four part film called the century of the self huh. uh and then a three part one called uh the power of nightmares i think those are those are absolutely brilliant 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 films like um dense but really eye-opening are there
0: any other underrated movies that you think people should should see? they're not necessarily documentaries any f- any particular
1: um movies I, that come to mind for you of late i think um i'm a i'm a huge huge fan of um this french filmmaker jacques odiard who i think in the last few years he, He put up, he put up a a hat trick of films, um, uh, The Beat My Heart Skipped and then A Prophet. That is one of, okay. So that is one of my favorite films. Like one of the, amazing. I, I, I I personally put A Prophet as one of the three best gangster films ever made. So good. I think, oh my God. The Godfather, Goodfellas and A Prophet are, are at this point my three if I had to pick three gangster films, yeah. I think they're the best ones. If and just, yeah, if, if, for those people who
0: haven't seen a prophet, it's, uh, I don't speak French, but I guess it's Un Prophet. And the, the poster, if you're looking at it on Netflix or Amazon or iTunes or whatever, it's sort of red and black. But it's about uh, I want to say a Middle Eastern Algerian. Algerian. Yeah. That's right. Algerian uh young male who goes to prison and about his what happens? ascension. Yeah, oh my more. god. I won't say anything uh, more.
1: And and then after that, uh Rust and Bone was his next film, and it's like it's just a brilliant film, uh Marion Cotillard, It's like one of the great performances uh in the last few years and I love those all those films. Um, and then, um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, excusing the fact that I happen to be in one of them, but, uh, the, but I think Alejandro Inuridu's last three films in a row, uh, Beautiful, Beautiful was an extremely, extremely underseen masterpiece. Um, it was Inuridu's film prior to Birdman and, it's a masterpiece. Um, it's just called beautiful. Yeah. Spelled, spelled wrong. Uh, it's a masterpiece and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And again, one of the greatest performances of all, in a long time. And, and his, the third in his triptych, I think is The Revenant out right now. I, th- I think The Revenant's w- one of the great films I've seen in the last many years. It's like, it's a, an absolute unqualified masterpiece. It's just, it's just, it's like a Native American spirit myth or straight out of a Joseph Campbell myth or something it's just it's just a magnificent, magnificent piece of filmmaking.
0: Uh, we could have a whole separate conversation about about birdman which won't which we won't do today, but also one of my favorite films in the last few years. Three more questions if you could have a billboard anywhere that said anything, what would you put on it
1: um I might put pray for surf, uh, I, I, uh, um, I don't know. I, I might put the name of certain people from high school, like, and just say like, so-and-so comma, how you like me now, (laughs) No, that would be very unevolved. That would be very, very unevolved. Um, uh, but, uh, no, Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would put on it. I'd, um. We can come back to that too. I, you know what I, you know what I, I, no, I'm changing my answer. I would put, uh, I would put Paul Rudd's cell phone number, uh, on it. It, it would complete, it would complete a long running, um, uh, series of jokes that would just be perfect. I would say, see if we can, we can, Paul Rudd's actual number, please call.
0: We'll do, we'll do a separate crowdfunding campaign to raise money for the billboard rental. Uh, what advice would you give to your 30 year old self and could you just place where you were at the time?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I know I was, I was on the last two days of shooting a film I was directing when I turned 30 and, um, I, I think I, I might tell myself at that phase to, um, commit myself to a few fewer things than i did at that time that i'm still (laughs) that i'm still feeling obligated to and that maybe i wish i i had a few less of those things um like i think my my aspiration and my sense of my own energy and time was like limitless at that time and now um some of that has become a, a a cage of obligation that I would like to uh, um, uh, <laughs> unlock. Unlock, yeah, yeah. But I'll get there. Senior
0: year in college, what advice would you have given yourself?
1: Um. I might, I might've told myself to go live abroad right then. I should have done it right then, like for a year or two. I I had lived abroad a little bit. I should have gone and. That's like when you think everything's about to get started and it's not. (laughs) And I should have, I, you know, I I should have gone and lived. I should have gone somewhere and lived somewhere, you know, interesting or different that I would be much harder to do later. Where would you, where would you
0: choose for yourself?
1: I don't know. No, I don't know. Um, Should take a
0: trip to Japan together. Get you back to Japan. Uh, last, last real question is, do you have any ask or request of the audience, people listening, things they should
1: do, ponder, or otherwise? Um, if you're gonna, um, if you're looking to, uh, if you're looking to raise financial support for a friend or family member, do it on CrowdRise, not on other sites, because much more of the money will go through to them. That's my, uh, that's my, you know, uh, entrepreneurial hat. And then, um, uh, mm, I think, uh, uh, I'd say, and I'm not even joking. I think like, um, s- you know, stay tuned into communities like this. I think, I think it's, uh, I think these things are really cool. I think, um, you know, maybe in a, in a, sim- put, sim- put more simply, like just participate, you know, in some, What I think is cool about what you've assembled is I think it's, um, it's, it's driven by people's desire to like, uh, not hack life, but, but, but be proactive and participate and not be apathetic. And I like that. I think that's, I think that's, um, that's a positive community. And I think, um, I think, uh, we all, we all get really tired, you know, I think people, it, modern life is stressful and tiring and confusing and i think it's um i think uh you know nietzsche has that great thing that idea of self-overcoming of like that that the overman is not like a a perfect person it's it's actually the person who's perpetually trying to uh self-overcome and i i really like that idea i think i think um i think uh like staying staying engaged in the idea of of evolving yourself is is really cool. So I think it's 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 awesome that you've got this many people kind of um linked up together around those ideas. Yeah, I I really hope
0: people listening no matter how small you might feel or isolated you might feel, I know not everyone out there has a community like uh you or I might have in New York or SF. You to make this year the year that you astonish yourself with what you can do or be a part of and you know look back at, on december 31st of this year and just sit hope to say holy shit i can't believe i was part of x or i did x to yourself because I, I don't i think it's a lot easier than people might think uh edward where can people find you on the interwebs on social to say hello um keep up to
1: date with what you're i'm not with? i'm not great at it i i uh You know, I, I throw tweets out now and then, um, mostly about things I've seen that I, like, like you were talking about, things I've seen or read that I think should find a wider audience or that people will appreciate. I, um. What is your handle on Twitter? Just my name. Okay. Uh, um, but I'm, um, I'm, I'm not cutting edge on, uh, I'm not as, I'm not as cutting edge, uh, I am on the crowdfunding stuff, but I'm not as, I'm not as cutting edge with social media as I, as I maybe should be. I am, um, or, or I don't know, maybe it's a good thing. Probably I means think. you've melted less of your brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think about it, you know, I think about like, like, uh, it, d- expanding on, you know, more robust ways of kind of doing like, like what you're doing in, in a much smaller way, but building up, more of a of a forum of of interactive conversation, but I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm I gotta I gotta, you, I, gotta you, I gotta I gotta I gotta finish yeah, I gotta you, finish things I started. It might be a cage within a cage. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I gotta finish things I started.
0: This is always fun. I I enjoy hanging out, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Definitely, that no, uh, was super fun. I, look,
1: I I I really um, I've 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 really enjoyed your books, I've enjoyed the kind of, uh, I've enjoyed them as a resource and, um, and I think, uh, uh, learned a lot and, and, um, and I think it's, I really do think it's cool that, that what you've cultivated is, is people who are, people who are interested in, uh, in, in, in continuing to explore, you know, like, like I, I think it's, it's, um, that idea, ongoing education ongoing discoveries the you know that's the zest and things yeah you don't you don't necessarily find yourself you create yourself
0: one little step at a time so edward thank you again and to everyone listening check out crowdrise.com forward slash tim ferris to see what mischief productive mischief i'm getting up to and as always, you can find the show notes, links to everything we talked about, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening.
1: Thanks. Have a good one. Hey, guys. This is Tim
0: again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday.